0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is from the prophecies of Micah. Let us turn now to chapter 4 of Micah. We begin our reading at verse 1 to the end of that chapter. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief. Among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We. We'll walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. And as for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud, have you no king? Has your counselor perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Wrist in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled, let her eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, he who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Our text this morning is taken from the prophecies of Micah chapter five, the next chapter, the verses one to five. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will live securely, for then His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and He will be their peace. I love a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There are numerous people, both Christian and non-Christian alike, who approach the Bible, as if it were simply a collection of loose, separate stories, incidents, and events. And as a result, when they read it, they hop and they skip all over the place. Then they read this, and then they read that, and a a lot of it depends on their mood or their particular situation. They pick and they choose their way through the scriptures. And as a result, they see no line in it. And yet that's not, beloved, the normal way to regard it or to read it. But the truth of the matter is, and I've told you that before, the Bible is all about one unfolding and progressive story there is one line in it stretching from the Old Testament all the way into and through the New Testament. And although it has to be said that that one line is present, within that one line there are also different levels. Take the matter of the Gospels and how they approach the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's one story. But it's one story with so many different dimensions. There's the angelic visitation to Zachariah. There is another angelic visitation to Mary. There's a vision and visitation for Joseph. There are the travels of Mary and Joseph. There are the wise men from the east. There are the shepherds out in the fields. And the list goes on and on. And nevertheless, when all is said and done, all of these events come together, and they give us one great, wondrous account. In all of that diversity, there is this living unity. And yet the unity, beloved, of the scriptures is more than just evident in these opening chapters of the gospel. It's a fact throughout the Bible. For as we read the news of Christ's birth, we see the connections as well to the past and even to the far, far distant past. Take only the matter of that name, David. It's a name that we've been rather busy with during this Advent season. We have been reminded about how God promised David a throne to sit on, a kingdom to rule over, a family of future kings. And we've also heard how the Lord has stressed that these promises are forever and ever. And we heard last Sunday afternoon how God used the refrain, a lamp for David To remind his people that he has not forgotten any of these promises. But now, beloved, this morning there is something else to remind us that our God has not forgotten. There is another promise that reminds us that he remembers. And that tells us that, yes, the Old Testament really is one great drama. One redemptive drama that keeps on moving forward. And as it moves forward, it becomes fuller and fuller. Beloved, not only did God promise David a throne, a kingdom, a house, and a lamp. But we see this morning God also promised David a town. That's another dimension. Of these gospel promises today. So I'd like to preach to you this morning on this theme, a town for David. The savior ruler is coming and we shall ask where will he appear? Who will he be? And what will he accomplish? So a town for David, the savior ruler is coming. We look at our text and we ask where will he appear? Who will he be and what will he accomplish? My beloved, our text this morning is taken from Micah chapter 5 and in that text you find some very familiar words. Specifically, I'm thinking of the words that you find in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. How many of you didn't memorize those words as a child, whether for a class assignment or for a Christmas program? And why was that? Well, because these particular words of Micah 5, verse 2, have been made famous. They're the same words that you find in Matthew, chapter 2, words that are cited when the wise men come to Jerusalem from the east, looking for the Christ child. And they asking Herod where to find him. Herod doesn't know. He hasn't got a clue. He has to consult his priests and the teachers of the law. And they know the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Micah has foretold it. But not only did Micah foretell it, angels announced it too, they, they said to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Bethlehem is famous throughout the scriptures, and it is famous throughout the world as the town of David. And again, this year you may have read it in the papers, Its streets and its churches will be filled with pilgrims trying to get even closer to that blessed event of so many years ago. But yet if they really want to get close to that event, they're encouraged to do something else as well. They're encouraged to do what we are going to do here this morning, and that is take a good long look at those actual words found in Micah five. Another meeting. Well, let's first of all look, beloved, for a moment at the setting here. Before Micah two, there's Micah chapter five, verse one. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Obviously, those particular words describe a rather nasty time. It appears that we are into a military situation here, as troops are mentioned. It also appears that we are into a situation here where an evading army is laying siege to one of the cities in the promised land and a further detail has to do with the fact that the ruler of israel at that time will not be able to rescue the people micah prophesies that he will be struck on the cheek with a rod which is a fancy old testament way of saying that the enemy enemy is going to humiliate him so who and what and when is this all about But if you turn back to Micah chapter 1, verse 1, you can read that Micah was busy as a prophet during the reigns of three kings of Judah, Josem, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And when the reigns of those three kings are examined, then what stands out is that during the reign of one of them, the reign of King Hezekiah, Jerusalem was besieged by a foreign army the Assyrian army led by Sennacherib tried to beat down the walls of the holy city. And so the conclusion is arrived at that Micah 5 is all about the siege of Sennacherib during the reign of King Hezekiah. Now that is one possible explanation. But however, there is a problem with that explanation for King Hezekiah was not defeated and humiliated by the Assyrian general and his army. Those of you who know your Old Testament scriptures know that God worked a great and a mighty deliverance for Hezekiah, for Jerusalem, for Judah. You see, Hezekiah was not struck on the cheek who was? Personally, beloved, I would side with those scholars who say that Micah 5, verse 1 took place at the end of the reign of King Zedekiah. And while it is true that Micah did not live probably during his reign, nothing could stop him from prophesying already about it. In Micah 1, verse 1, we are even told that His book is about the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. In the days of Joseph, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Micah saw a vision regarding the future. And what sort of vision? He saw Jerusalem surrounded by a great army and under siege. He even saw her fall to the enemy. And Micah even saw something else. He saw King Zedekiah being captured and taken to Nebuchadnezzar. And there Micah saw all of Zedekiah's sons being killed. And in 2 Kings 25, he saw Zedekiah's eyes being put out. In short, Micah saw Israel's ruler being struck on the cheek with a rod. You can imagine all in all that represents a rather distressing prophecy. Desperately he sees a city and a kingdom trying to defend itself. He hears a cry for fresh troops to come along. He hears it ring out, but no one answers. Jerusalem will fall. The king will be humiliated. This is a text in a very dark and distressing situation. But then, beloved, if there is a sad setting here, there is also the contrast. And what kind of a contrast? Why the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come. Here is a case of Jerusalem versus Bethlehem. Jerusalem is the mighty, the great, the proud, the vain, the haughty capital city. And as for Bethlehem, it is that little minor town some ten kilometers to the south. And it has no power or wealth. It's good for only a few things. Growing grain and raising sheep for Jerusalem. Bethlehem, the house of bread, that's what it means. Ephrathah, fruitful, plentiful. And most likely Bethlehem is the town. Ephrathah is the region around it. Yes, and it was also something else. It was the home of the smallest clan in all of Judah. The people of this town and region just didn't count in the eyes of men. They had no standing or influence. They were nobodies. They were mere servants supplying the comforts of Jerusalem. And yet, beloved, here is the wonder. Here is a fitting preparation already for what will happen much later on. For Micah prophesies that out of this land of insignificance, someone special will arise. Out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel. God is going to do a mighty thing. He's going to make a little people and a little place famous. He's going to raise it up. And isn't that just like our God Isn't that something that every Christmas reminds us about? Our God loves to dabble in surprises. He loves to turn expectations and estimations upside down. He loves to catch people off guard. He does it by choosing Bethlehem. He does it by choosing Mary. He does it by choosing the shepherds. He does it by choosing people like Joseph and Anna and Simeon. Truly, beloved, there is a sense in which Christmas is the feast of the underdog, of the unexpected, the undeserving, the insignificant. And when you hear that, you know it's also a feast for us. The Apostle Paul said about the believers in Corinth, and that word also applies to us, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble births. Jerusalem is great. Bethlehem is nothing. But our God humbles the great. And he raises up the nothings of this world. And that's not all he does. He does something even more significant. He promises something to his people. An unimaginable ruler. Look closely at the rest of verse 2. Out of you will come for me... One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now what is that? Better yet, who is this? Some might be inclined to say, oh, this is just one more announcement of the coming of yet another human ruler. And what's so great about that? Israel has had so many of them already yet, but but how many of them can be labeled success stories? How many have ruled well? How many lived up to expectation? You see, there's a lot of skepticism in the air. Oh, and we know something about that too, don't we? Last week, the federal election campaign in Canada continued. Politicians made their rounds even in British Columbia and they had their first debates. And what did we hear but promises, promises and more promises. And a critic hearing all of these promises would say one thing these people know how to do really well. And that is how to spend our money for us. But do they know how to rule? Do they know how to deliver the goods? Do they know how to live up to expectation? And then it has to be said, beloved, that sadly speaking, the kings and rulers and the prime ministers of this world, they leave a lot to be designed. It's not so surprising that the people grow more and more cynical. No one can say that our rulers have been serving us well of late. But look now, this ruler that Micah mentions is different. Some very peculiar things are said about him. For one, God says that he will come from me. For another, his origins are said to be of old from ancient times. With regard to that first thing, Micah is prophesying that this ruler will be different because God himself is sending him. The Lord has seen the plight of his people. They and he as well are tired of this good king, bad king merry-go-round. He's fed up with all the compromising and, and the idolatries and all the injustices and immoralities. He's going to intervene most directly and give them a better and far superior ruler. This ruler will represent him truly and really work for the blessing of God's people. And Micah says he's going to do that forever. For here the second thing comes into play. Micah refers to him as being from of old, from ancient times. And that you will agree is special language. Actually, it's the language of divinity being added to the language of humanity. This coming ruler will be unlike any other. He will be fully human, and yet he will also be truly divine. He's a ruler, Micah says, who's always been. He's the eternal ruler. He's the ruler unlike any other. And who is this ruler? Well, I think you all know the answer. He's none other than our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. It's about His coming that Micah is prophesying. Of Him, John declares, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You know, earlier we spoke of a contrast between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Well, here's another contrast. A contrast between all of the rulers of this world and the ruler to come. The defective rulers of this world and of Israel are pitted against the perfect ruler of them all. And he's coming. Never doubt it. Micah says in verse 3, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she was in labor. He gives birth. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. In other words, a time of exile is coming, and but it will not last forever. Now one day the exile, which is here described in terms of labor pains, one day the exile, the labor will be over and the remnant of Israel will return. Yes, and then this great and unparalleled ruler will appear. Then at last the fulfillment of the ages and the desire of the nations will come. And Jesus the Christ will be born in Bethlehem, the town, village, city of David. But born to do what? What will Glorious saving work. Listen to Micah again. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord as God. You hear that? Very simply, when this ruler comes, one thing in particular is going to stand out. And you know what it is? It is the fact that he will act as a shepherd. Now, that's not exactly your 21st century North American image. It's an ancient Eastern image. And yet when you examine it, you find the most reassuring image here. You know why? Some will say it's reassuring because a shepherd, at least a true shepherd, does so much He feeds, he leads, he provides, he defends, he nurses, he watches, and so much more. And that's all true. I would say to you this morning it's very hard to find a more comprehensive and complete image of perfect care than a shepherd. There's reassurance in all that he does. But you know there's reassurance in something else as well. It's the fact that a shepherd does all of these things mentioned and more for the sake of the sheep. In other words, a true shepherd is not someone who is chiefly concerned about number one, which is meat. He is not in it for the power, the prestige, or the pension. He's not on an ego trip. Now, a true shepherd denies himself. And he always, always puts his sheep first and foremost. Their welfare is his first priority. Their happiness is his chief aim. Their security is his all-consuming passion. And that's the picture of a true shepherd. And isn't that at the same time a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Read in John chapter 10 what he says about being the good shepherd. And how he repeatedly emphasizes the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's all service. It's all sacrifice. I read too about his crucifixion, suffering and death. It's all for the redemption of his people. You see, this ruler of Micah, he knows how to serve. He knows how to do it in the strengths of the Lord. And he knows how to do it so as to add majesty and glory to the name of the Father. And the result, says Micah, is that here at last is a ruler to hope for and to trust in and to look forward to. And about God's people he writes, And they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be their peace. Those words represent, I would say, present reality and future fulfillment. Today already, all of those and all of you who trust in this ruler, this shepherd, We'll be able to live. They can live in the knowledge and the certainty and the comfort of His sure promises and the knowledge of the present power of God. The fact that Jesus Christ is who He is and does what He does pays all kinds of dividends today in our lives in terms of hope and comfort and strength and perspective and consolation. And then there is even more, for Micah puts it, one day his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. In addition, he says, one day he will bring complete and perfect peace into the lives of his people forever. And isn't that beautiful, beloved? Isn't that comforting? Isn't that something to look forward to? One day all of the spears are going to be broken. All of the plowshares are going to be in evidence. All of the weapons of war will be no more. No wonder that Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. He knew where to place his hope and his confidence. And his hope was rewarded. And, beloved, that applies to us. You and I are living between the advents. No, we're not living between evolution and extinction. We are living between the first coming and the second coming of the world's greatest ruler and shepherd. And as we do so, As we live our lives in that context, let us do it with great joy and anticipation. You know, if his first coming turned the world upside down, just imagine, imagine what his second coming will accomplish. It will confirm his greatness forever. And it will usher in for his people everlasting peace. And will be home and happy at last. Indeed, beloved, great things happen in little places. In Bethlehem of Ephrathah, the town of David, the Savior will be born. To Bethlehem a Savior for the world is come. Truly David receives a throne, a kingdom, a house, a lamp, and a town. He receives it all in Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen.